0: Lord, we just thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we love the written word because the written word leads us to the living word, Jesus. And Jesus, this morning, at the end of all of this, we want the destination to be you for every heart and every mind, Lord. That we would just come to the end of this whole discussion and say, yeah, this is about Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning we, we come, God, we come with open hearts right now, just before your spirit, before you, Lord, we would say, give us soft hearts, Lord. May we have understanding, Lord. May we have a spirit of wisdom and revelation to understand the wonderful things that are in your word. And we pray, God, that you would find soft hearts in us, Lord. If our hearts are hard, God. We pray that you would give us soft, believing hearts, Lord, and that we would receive the things that are in your word. We pray, God, that these things that we read this morning, that they would take root in our lives and that they would produce fruit for you, for your glory and for your name. And so, God, we thank you for your word. And we ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we're diving back in here to Romans and just in this great section. And, you know, as we come to it, I just think of some of the the great promises of scripture that Jesus gave. Jesus said this, he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He said, I'll give you rest in your soul. I'll give you peace in your heart. We've seen throughout Romans just wonderful promises. The Lord promises in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 that all things work together for the good of of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We saw in Romans chapter 8 that the Word of God promises us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And all of those things are, are God's promises guaranteed to those who put their faith in His Son Jesus. These are not, this is not like gambling on the patriots today, okay? Or like gambling on the eagles where you you don't know what the results is. This is, when it it comes to Jesus, it's not rolling the dice, not chance, not gambling. Betting on Jesus is a sure thing. You know, putting your hope in his promises is a sure thing. And one of the reasons why we know it is a sure thing is this, is that God has been faithful to Israel. That's what we're going to see in this text. He's been faithful to Israel, and so he'll be faithful to you. Um, You know, we've been in this section of Romans, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 kind of pulled together as a unit, as as we've seen. And God uses, or sorry, Paul uses the nation of Israel to illustrate that God will be faithful in his promises to you. God's God's been faithful to Israel, he'll be faithful to you. And a few weeks ago, when we were in Romans chapter 9, I, I basically began the message with this question, and the, the question was this. If God cannot bring uh, an ancient people, the people of Israel, to salvation, if he can't do that, then how do we know that he can bring us into salvation? And so Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, they're, they're this unit. In Romans chapter 9, we saw this, that, that God looked at, or sorry, it looks at God's past dealings with the nation of Israel, and Paul said this, in his sovereignty, God elected Israel to a purpose. In Romans chapter 10, then, where we were last week, we looked at God's present dealings with the nation of Israel, that although they've rejected God's son, God's provision for them in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is continuing to hold out his hands uh, to a an unrepentant people, and he is inviting them into salvation. And so in Romans, what we've seen is this, the, the past with Israel, the present with Israel, and as we come to Romans chapter 11, Paul is going to talk about the future of Israel, and this is significant for us, and it's significant along these lines, okay? It tells us some of the future of what God has in store, but where it's significant is this too, is that this letter, the letter of Romans, If you're new here this morning or you haven't been around for some of this series, you may not have heard this. But this is actually at the heart of what was happening in the Roman church. Paul had not planted this church in Rome. And what had happened was that the church had been born by Jewish believers in Rome. And as they served Jesus, Gentiles began to get saved and the church was this mix of Jew and non-Jew. But then the Roman emperor Claudius came along and he made a declaration and he kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And so what happened was this, is that the church that had been first Jewish, then Gentile Jewish, became entirely Gentile. And in that, um, the Gentiles began to think, well, yeah, of course this is the case because Israel no longer means anything in God's plan. And when the Roman Empire then invited the Jews back to to Rome, the church began to have this conflict within it. And so Paul is is writing, one of the hearts he's been writing to address is the, the the Jewish Gentile Christian conflict. Where do they fit together? Has God replaced Israel? Has the church replaced Israel? And what is God's hope for these people? And so in Romans 11, Paul tells us about God's future plan for Israel. He's talked past. He's talked present. And now he's going to talk future. And this is a really important chapter, I would say. I mean, if you're a Bible prophecy person and you like that kind of stuff, this is important because Paul is speaking of a literal future for a literal people, for a literal nation. And, and many people teach this, and many Christians believe this, that God is finished with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people. That belief actually has a, a title. It's called replacement theology, which means this. The church has replaced Israel. And, and, and that kind of thinking says, you know, where Israel has forfeited the blessings and the promises of God by rejecting Jesus, the church has now become the recipient of all those promises and blessings made to Israel. And so the question is really this. Is like, well, has God rejected those people? Has he rejected them? God's made certain promises to Israel. And what we're going to see here is that he is going to fulfill his promises. As he, and he is going to fulfill them not on the basis of their integrity, but on the, on the basis of his own integrity and righteousness and nature and character. And this matters to us. Why does this matter? It matters for this reason. See, if if God can bring an ancient people to salvation, then he can bring us to salvation. If God has integrity with Israel, then he will have integrity with, with you and I, and the Lord has promised. He who's begun a good work in us will bring it to conclusion. And so Paul, to prove that, that there is a future for the nation of Israel and God's, God, and God's plan for them, he calls five witnesses to the table in Romans chapter 11 to testify to this truth. So check it out, verse one, the first witness, he says, is himself. I ask then, has God rejected his people? That can't be any clearer, that question, right? By no means, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So the first witness Paul calls to the stand is himself. I don't know how that works in a court of law, but he does it, okay? And he says this, has God rejected his people? By no means. If God has cast away the people of Israel, then Paul's kind of argument is this, then explain my salvation. Explain me. You know, the story of Paul's conversion is told three times in in the book of Acts. If you ever read the book of Acts, like in a real quick hurry, you kind of think, why is it repeated three times? Like three times it is repeated super, super clear, the story of of Paul. And it almost seems like repetitive and redundant. But what Paul is telling us as he calls himself basically to the witness stand is, is not so much the fact that that he was saved, but the way that he was saved. Paul's story is unique. When you think about Paul's conversion story, it's really unique. It's really fascinating. Um, You know, Paul was persecuting the church. Paul was out imprisoning Christians. He was doing everything that he could to oppose the name of Jesus. You know, when you think about your testimony, each of us has, like, cool stories. I love hearing people's testimonies, don't you? I love hearing how Jesus won each one of you. And we have powerful, lots of you have powerful stories of your conversion, of your salvation, your testimony. But none of us here in this room, for sure, have a story like Paul's. Nobody here. I mean, his story is unique. Did you see Jesus in all of his glory? I, I didn't. You know, Did you hear Jesus speak from heaven? Or were you thrown to the ground? Were you blinded by a light from heaven that actually caused you to be blind? And I mean, you know the story of Paul. Eventually, like scales actually fell from the man's eyes. It's like, it's a crazy, miraculous story. Paul was Though he had been blinded, God opened his eyes. And so Paul's conversion is, a, is an incredible story. And his, his salvation is really a pattern of what is going to happen to the nation of Israel. That's what you have to see in the scriptures. We believe this, that during the great tribulation that will come upon the whole earth, persecution will come against the people of Israel. The nations will gather to annihilate the Jews, and suddenly Jesus will come, the Lord will appear, and just like Paul, the people of Israel will realize they made a terrible mistake with regards to Jesus. And they will turn to him, and they will be saved. Zechariah Zechariah 13 prophesies that. They will see Jesus, they will recognize him as their Messiah, and they will turn from their sin, they will repent and be saved. And so Paul points to himself as the first witness as to God's intentions towards Israel. And it's not the fact that he was saved that proves, proves the, that there's a future for Israel. It's the way in which he was saved that is very important that we catch as we go on here. Look at verse two. Again, he asks, or he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Second witness, Elijah. Paul tells us in verse 2, again, God has not rejected his people. They're his people. He foreknew them. He's chosen them. Remember Elijah? I love Elijah. Don't you love Elijah? He's like one of the great characters of the Old Testament. He's, he's, a pro, he's the prophet that called down fire from heaven, that went head to head against the 400 prophets of Baal, and God miraculously sent fire from heaven and consumed it, and the nation, uh, the nation just began to turn back to the Lord through Elijah's leadership. But one of the things that happened to Elijah after he had had this showdown with the prophets of Baal, And the prophets of Baal had been killed as a result. Uh, The wicked queen Jezebel threatened to take Elijah's life. And so the the Bible tells us that Elijah packed up in fear after this showdown and after this threat on his life. And he ran for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. He went to Mount Sinai and there he hid. And fear of his life, he hid in a cave and the Bible tells us that the word of God came to him and God said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then he began to complain to the Lord and he began to pray to the Lord about the spiritual state of the nation around, around him, his own people. And he said, Lord, you know, I, I'm, I'm so spiritual. I'm in tune with you. The nation and the people around me that I'm trying to serve you in the midst of are fleshly, carnal, worldly people who have turned against you. And I'm all alone. And Elijah, it's crazy to me, he made an appeal to the Lord against Israel. You think about that. Lord, they've killed all your prophets, he says. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. He began to pray against the nation of Israel. That's crazy when you think about it, because he's the guy who called down fire from heaven, (laughs) he's the guy who prayed, and the Lord sent rain. Uh, You don't want to have that. He's the guy who prayed and the Lord raised the widow's son from from the dead, okay? You don't want this guy praying against you is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) In terms of people praying against you, Elijah's not the man you want praying against you. And he was appealing against Israel. And the Lord said to him, Elijah, you think that you're the only one left and the nation has departed from me? You don't know that I've reserved 7,000 people for me. That there is a remnant left that is, that is serving me. And, and there is a remnant of, of true believers. You think the nation is departed and that you're all alone, but there is a remnant of those who truly have put their faith in me. And even now, the point Paul is saying is this. Even now, the fact is that, that though most of the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus, that is no proof that God has done with them. That's no proof. You know, there's never been a time, when you think about it, you read the Bible, there has never been a time when the entire nation of Israel has been true to the Lord. We know this, that even amongst uh, those chosen people, God makes a distinction between Ishmael and Isaac between the son born of the flesh and the son born of the promise. And it's not the law or the covenant of circumcision that saved a, saves the Jewish people or saves you and I, like Abraham. They have to believe in faith in the Lord, like you and I, to be saved. You know, I think about Elijah praying against them, and I just think, man, I gotta remember that. Next time I wanna pray against someone. <laughs> remember this, that that there are things in play that you don't know about. Yeah, I mean, can you know someone else's heart? Elijah was ignorant. You know, he was ignorant to the fact that there were 7,000 faithful people to the Lord. And I just was thinking about, I thought, you know, when I pray, I wonder what facts I'm like ignorant of. What I don't know, you know, when we think about that person, that's the person that's maybe got you all riled up. What, what facts are you ignorant of in that situation? You know, just bring it to the Lord. And so as Elijah makes his appeal uh, to God, look at verse four. It tells us how God answered him. But God said to him, "But what is God's reply to him? I have kept to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal." So too Paul says, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul says, just as there was a remnant in Elijah's day, so now there is a remnant and there will always be a remnant amongst the nation of Israel chosen by grace. Verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We know this. We should know this. You can't mix grace and works. It doesn't fit together. They, they cancel one another out in God's mouth. Israel as a nation had always been so concerned with trying to please God on the basis of good works and obedience to, to the law. And we can do the same as followers of Jesus. But the problem is, is when, when we rely on our good works and the things that, that we do to get God in a position of submission to us, it doesn't leave room for his grace. It doesn't leave room for his unmerited favor. And the nation of Israel had relied on that arm twisting and they refused to submit to God's grace that was made available through Jesus. They refused to submit to Christ's righteousness. And and those who depend on their own righteousness, self-righteous people, religious people, are no different today. You know, when you, when you trust in your religion, when you trust in your righteousness, your self-righteousness, you cancel out grace. Like, man, I don't want to cancel out God's unmerited favor. I do not want to put trust in myself. I want it to be in Jesus. And the reality is, is when you rely and trust on your religion and and your self-righteousness, you cancel out Jesus. There's no need for him in your life. And if a remnant had been saved, I would say in this situation, proving that, that God was not through with his people, then the question is this, well then what about the rest of the nation? If there's a remnant, then what about the rest of the nation? A remnant has been kept, but what Paul's going to tell us, the rest have been hardened. Check it out, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Another translation says, uh, translates the word hardened as blinded. They were hardened or they were blinded. They have, they have eyes that can't see. That hardening, that, that spiritual blindness, that spiritually impaired hearing was the result of resisting truth. Resisting God's truth. You know, we've all experienced that time to time in our lives where we resist the truth of God we know, you and I know, that at times my ears are dull, man. At times it's like my eyes are blind to the, to the things of God. Our hearts are hard. And our, and our eyes maybe don't see with the, with the focus and the vision that they had once seen. And, and the fact is, is that I would say this. God is the same today, yesterday, today and forever. That's what the word of God says. in. in So that means this, that God does not change. God does not move. And so if our relationship with the Lord in a certain sense is frosty, or if it's cold, or if it seems hard or aloof, it's not God that ever moved. It was not God that moved. It's us. Maybe we've slidden into the Religious spirit, the self righteous relationship with Jesus, one that rather than resting on faith and hungering after the things of God and longing for the things of God, has come to a place where your heart resists truth. And resisting truth will lead to the hardening of your heart. That's a crazy thing when you think about it. It's the number one killer heart disease resisting truth will lead to the hardening of your heart. And it's as though the Lord says to us, and we've seen this in, in past chapters, it's as though he says, okay, well, if that's the way you want to go, then I'll, I'll let you go that way. And, and he says this, it, Paul says this, God, God has hardened the Jews. And I would say this, this happens wherever the word of God is preached. Right here this morning, I have to believe I hope it's not the case but there is hearts being hardened to the truth of God's word. Some hearts are softened and others are hardened and it depends on the attitude to which you come to the Lord. David says this in verse 9. Paul quotes him. David says, "Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He says, may their, may their table become a snare. The table speaks of, you know, fellowship, blessing, provision, uh, abundance. And, and David says this, let, let the abundance of their lives and the blessing of their lives be. Uh, become a curse so they begin to recognize what's going on I was thinking about that it's it's interesting you know that's one of the reasons why we stop and we pray at the dinner table you know it's like God I want to acknowledge blessing I want to acknowledge abundance it's not so much bless this food Lord it's like Lord I bless you for your provision in my life you're the provider and in this scenario all of God's favor and blessing upon Israel should have led them to recognize Jesus. We've seen in previous week th- they had everything to their advantage so that they would recognize Jesus and follow him. But instead their blessings, even the temple, even all the teaching that they had and their worship practices and the law, all these things that were meant to lead them to the place where they would draw near to God, became the very thing that they stumbled over. They stumbled over the table and they missed missed Jesus. The religious practice and their their observances became substitute for the real thing. found in Jesus. Look at verse 11. As we're gonna see, this matters for you and I. So I ask, he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So he says, you know, did they they stumble so far as to fall beyond an ability to recover? Now I would say this, there's a difference between stumbling and falling, isn't there? And Paul describes Israel's condition as a stumble. They haven't fallen They've tripped up. They, they, they've stumbled. They're not down and out for the count. They've just tripped up. And he gives a third witness. And the third witness of that is this, is the Gentiles. See, when the Jews rejected the gospel, we know this, God sent the message of Jesus to you and I, to, the, to, to Gentiles, That is is the fruit, that's the good part of Israel's stumbling, that we got the gospel, that we were able to receive it. God God promised, he had promised that, that he would save the Gentiles, and he is keeping that promise. And he will, and, and, and I would say this, if he's keeping his promise to save the Gentiles, would he not also keep his promise to Israel? And God's plan is to provoke the jealousy of Israel by blessing the Gentiles, he's, He's using the church to provoke the jealousy of Israel. And so God has not rejected Israel. It's quite the opposite, actually. God is so committed to the people and the nation of Israel that he says this, you know what I'll do? In my plan to reach out to them, I will bless the Gentiles to try and wake up my people. So your salvation my salvation is not proof that God's rejected them, it's proof that he's holding out his hands to them, that he's reaching out to them. Now verse 12, now if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I mean, it's, he says this, is, it's amazing, but the world has received a great blessing over, over their trespass, the gospel has gone out to us. And so the question is just this simple, how much greater will the blessing be when the nation is spiritually restored? What, what, the spiritual restoration of Israel is going to be the result of the return of Jesus, the physical return of King Jesus. He's gonna come. He's going he's to rule on the earth. We, we saw when we were in Zechariah last summer, at Zechariah 12 and 13, he's going to rule on the earth. He's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. So Paul says, boy, if we've been blessed at their trespass, how much more will we be blessed when they turn in faith to Jesus? Look at verse 13. He says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What is he telling us? That there's a future for Israel. You know, we look, we can all see the news, hear the news, look at our world. Presently, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people are in a spiritually stumbled condition. But when Jesus returns, they're gonna turn to him. They're gonna turn to him. And this is important. Here's why it's important. Because it tells us this, that God does not break his covenants nor his promises. That's important for me. I want to know that God is not going to break his covenant or promise with me. I want to keep my faith in Jesus. And the Lord has promised, I am going to restore Israel. I will not abandon my covenants. Jeremiah 31, it prophesies this, uh, verse 35 to 37. The Lord links his promises to the nation of Israel, to the sun, moon, and the stars. He says, if they move from their courses then my covenant will be broken. He says, if you can explore all the depths of the ocean and the heavens, then I'll break my covenant with Israel. We know what's happening as we explore the heavens. Can't get to the end of them. God does not break his covenants. And so Paul calls a a fourth witness to the table. And the fourth witness is this, the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't call them by name, but he is calling them as witnesses. And he gives two illustrations in regards to the patriarchs to prove the argument that God is not finished with the Jews. Verse 16. He says this, If the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So the first illustration is the lump of dough. Okay, the lump of dough, we, that's, a, that's a reference to Numbers chapter 15 where the people were instructed to bring to God the first fruits. It was their offering. It was their, their tithe. And they were even to bring the first lump of the dough and give it to the Lord and in turn the rest was sanctified. That's part of why we practice tithing, you know. You say, Well, I give to the Lord of my first fruits. I am sanctifying the rest. It's not just about the 10%, it's about the 100%. It's like I want God to sanctify the 100, so I honor with the 10. And so the application to the history of Israel is this is that, that God accepted Abraham. Abraham's the lump. Isaac, Jacob, they're the lump, they're the first fruits. And God accepted Abraham, he chose him, and in doing so, he set apart the descendants as well. And in spite of their failings, failings, in spite of of their their mess-ups and their sin and all of that stuff, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were accepted by God because they put their faith in him. He says this in verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though in all of wild shoot, have been grafted in amongst, among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, the root supports you. This is the second illustration that he gives in reference to the patriarchs. It's the olive tree. The olive tree in scripture is a symbol of the nation of Israel. And Paul is talking about their place in God's plan. And he says this, the roots of the tr- the roots support the tree. God made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because he cannot deny himself or deny his covenants or his word or change them, and so God promises God's promises to the patriarchs still today sustain the nation of Israel. The roots support the tree, he's telling us. Look at verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So we know this, many many Jewish people did not believe. And and Paul described them as branches that were broken off. And Gentile believers as wild branches were grafted into the tree and they share in the life-giving nourishment of the roots of that tree. And Paul gives this warning. He, He gives a warning to us that if God didn't spare natural branches then we should not be so presumptuous as to assume that we would be spared. We should not be so presumptuous to assume that we would be spared. See, there's only one safe place. And that's abiding in Jesus. Having your faith in Jesus. Uh, Abiding in the life-giving nourishment of a relationship with Jesus faith in Him, grace, His grace upon you. And the warning here is this is that the branch that does not abide in Jesus will be cut off and cast into the fire. Jesus himself said that, John 15. And all that means this, Paul says, he's going to say in a moment, that, that you need to understand the kindness of and the sternness of God. He warns us, don't, don't look out and become proud in your heart. But fear, he says. You know, you consider what Paul says here, and, and it might, might shock you, but he says this. Like, again, I mean, I just, we have to see this. He says this, if, if God cut out some of the Jews when they lost their faith in him, he warns, he'll also cut you out if you lose your faith in him. And the warning is this. Be be serious about this. Fear. Don't be arrogant. Serve the Lord with fear because he's the same God. You know, I would tell you that right here is why I don't believe once saved, always saved. That's it for me. The warning is there. Paul says, note The kindness and the severity of God. Verse 22, look. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. You know, this is why we've been saying this throughout Romans I've been saved, I'm being saved, I am going to be saved. And we're very mistaken when we take salvation and we think it's a line that we step across. It's a relationship. It's abiding in the vine. My faith always has to be in Jesus. Not sliding into works or stepping away from my faith. You know, the the picture in scripture really is this. No one can snatch you from my hand. But we know this, it's an open hand. No one will snatch you, but my hand is open, and I invite you to abide in me. And so I love that, because to me it says, what does it say? It says this, don't be arrogant. But we love arrogant people, don't we? <laughs> we love spiritually arrogant. Nobody, we don't like that. I don't like that. No one likes, no one admires the spiritually arrogant person What's the call here? Be humble. Don't get arrogant. See that some of the Jews were cut out and know that you too will be cut out if you do what they did and you don't trust the Lord. You don't trust Jesus. Do you know? Let's just drive this home for a minute here. Do you know that the Bible prophesies that in the last days that a professing Gentile church will be cut off? 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, all of those chapters indicate that a professing church will be cut off because of its apostasy. They turn from Jesus they quit abiding in the vine. They will depart from the faith. And so here in Romans 11, the Bible speaks of, of a future, uh, a future for apostate Israel. Now this is interesting. Just stop and think about this for a moment. The Bible says that Israel is apostate, but there is a future for them. God is going to restore them. But nowhere in the word of God, does it say there is a future for the apostate church? Doesn't say that. The Lord warns about being cut off. And I would say this, why why is there hope for an apostate Israel when there is no hope for an apostate church? And it comes down to this fact, the roots, the roots and God's covenants the roots of the olive tree. God keeps his promises and he will keep his covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul is telling us the roots are still good. Look at verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. He says this, God grafted it. he broke off the, the natural branches he grafted in wild branches, how much more can he graft back in the natural branch? Verse 24, for if you were cut off, or sorry, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Makes sense, right? Right? Totally makes sense. They can be grafted back in. And then Paul calls the fifth witness to the stand and it's the best witness of all. It's the Lord himself. Because Paul wants us to know the very character and nature and work of God is involved and is at stake. His nature is at stake with how he deals with Israel. You know, I could say this, we could argue different points when it comes to Bible prophecy, but we, we must remember that when it comes to God's dealings with Israel, they are his people. So verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's kind of five characteristics I think that Paul points out about God as a witness and his nature. And the first one he says is this. This this whole thing has to do with God's timing. He's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. See, God knows what he's doing. And what, what is happening with the nation of Israel is part of God's plan. The hardening or the blinding of Israel is both partial and it's temporary. It's a stumbling. And and it will last until the full number of Gentiles has come in. You know, God's at work in the world. He's building his church. He said, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against me. And primarily the building of his church has happened amongst the Gentiles. And when when time has run its course and whatever that number is, the last one comes in. The church we believe will be raptured and God will once more come and he will deal with his people as the nation of Israel. And the the key part of what he's saying here is that it has to do with God's timing until, until the number of Gentiles is coming. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The second characteristic of of God's witness is this, his promise, God's promise. And what an awesome promise this is that we read here. God God has promised he's gonna save his people and he's going to keep the promise. And so when Paul says this, you know, I would say this. When Paul says all Israel will be saved, that to me means this, that, The the living Jews who experience and see the coming of the Deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus will be saved. They'll see him, they'll receive him, and they will be saved. Zechariah 12 and 13 prophesize that. Now does that mean, here's a question, does that mean every single one? I don't necessarily think so. You know we read in the Old Testament times when Israel gathered would say things like this, well all of Israel came and gathered to David. Let's pick that for an example. Does that mean that the whole nation gathered like every individual? Or does it mean the whole of the nation came together? We we realize when we read that, it's like, well, you know, there were some, some that stayed behind. You know, there were little kids to look after. There were farm animals. There were responsibilities here, it's there. It's like... If the whole nation came and left every little city and community, then there would be a problem for them. Some stayed home to look after. So I I go, well, I don't know. Is it every single individual? I don't know. But the whole, the whole, he says, will respond. Look at verse 27. Wrap it up pretty quick here. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as, regards, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So the fifth thing about, or sorry, the third thing about God's, God as the witness has to do with his covenants, his covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. He made a, a covenant as an act of grace. The covenant God made with Abraham is based on on grace. And Israel was not chosen because they were good. They weren't chosen because they were good. And so they can't be rejected because of sin. Election is by the grace of God. And to the Christians, you know, to Christians, the the Jews are almost like, you know, you say this, it, it almost seems like, Well, they're enemies. I mean, you know, the church over thousands of years has treated Israel in a lot of ways. Jews like the enemies. I was going over some stuff this week and, you know, we just celebrated the 500 years of the Reformation and Martin Luther and it's like Martin Luther at the end of his ministry really turned on the Jews, you know. Hitler and the Nazis used a lot of what Luther wrote at the end of his life to motivate them. Here's Luther who got grace and yet he, 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 he got angry because he did not see Jewish people responding to the simplicity of the gospel. He said, they're enemies of Christ. And, and to us as Christians, it could, seem, it could seem like that. But to God, Paul says, they're his beloved. He will not break his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob And Paul goes on so clearly to say this in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. That's kind of the fourth part of God's witness, his nature. What does that tell us about God's nature? You know, the Lord said this to Malachi. He said, I am the Lord and I do not change. You know, the word of God tells us that God in numbers numbers 23 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God's ga- gifts, his his grace. God's call upon Israel can, cannot be taken back or changed because it would go against his very nature. So God will be true and he will be consistent to his word no matter what men might say and no matter what we might perceive. Verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they may also res- now receive mercy For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is the fifth part of God's witness, his grace. Because because of the Jews' unbelief, Gentiles were saved. And now, through our belief, maybe the Jews will be saved. And we talked about this last week, that we have a spiritual obligation to the nation of Israel. We have a spiritual obligation to Jewish people. Our obligation is this, brag about Jesus. Brag about Jesus. The Messiah, my best friend, is a Jew. I'm saved because of the word that was given to you. I'm saved because of Jesus. Brag about him. You know, it's cool, as you, as you come to the end of this chapter, it's like Paul's contemplated all of this stuff. He's been talking about it, he's talking about God's great plan of salvation throughout the ages, the way that he's at work in the world and all of the things that he's doing, and Paul just breaks out here at the end in a doxology of praise. To him, this is so awesome. To him, this is so awesome that he just begins to worship God. And to to stand in awe of God's salvation plans. A doxology is just this. It's a praise to God. Check it. Check out what Paul says here. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever. I, I just love that. I'm like, as I was studying that, I was just like, I was remembering the song that we used to sing like back in the 90s, these very words of Romans 11:36. 36. You know, it was an old vineyard tune, from him to him, through him, be all things, to God be the glory forever. And Paul says this about God as he's thinking about this. He's like, the wisdom of God the wisdom of God is inscrutable. That's like a weird word. You know what that means? It just simply means this. It's, it's like impossible to understand or interpret. He's God. It's ins- he's inscrutable, the way he's at work. He says about God's wisdom that God is like, it's like he's independent. He's, he's free from people's control. He's, he's not under the authority of anyone. There's no outside control over him. He's just fulfilling his word and doing his thing. He praises him for it. He says, he says about the Lord, he says this, it's from him and to him and through him are all things. What he's saying? He's like, he's saying this, what do we have without God? Like life is, God is indispensable, absolutely necessary. I need him, Paul is saying as he says this. To him and through him and for him are all things. And his conclusion, as he just shares all this stuff about God's salvation story and just his plan through the ages, is this man, to him be glory forever. Worship him. That's what he's calling, that's what the end conclusion. Jew, Gentile, Israel, all this discussion, the end conclusion is this worship God. Worship God, and we know this, that the Lord has made a way for us to worship him, and it's through his son Jesus. He's come, the sacrifice for our sins, the perfect man who gave his life on a cross so that nothing should separate us from the love of God. And those who have their faith in Jesus Christ, put their hope in his cross and his resurrection, they have hope, they have a future, They're part of this story. And this morning, man, I just invite you. We're gonna come to the Lord's table. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come, actually. We're gonna come to the Lord's table. We're gonna participate in in the Lord's Supper.